Amen. If you love Jesus, can I get a hallelujah? Amen. I'm so glad that you're here. Look at your neighbor and tell them you're glad that they're here. Thank you so much for coming today with your beautiful families. We love having you here. Open up your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. We're actually going to conclude the section now on families. And this important section is going to end with probably what's my favorite part about it. And that message is the union of Christ with the church. Everybody say, the union of Christ and his church. Thank you. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. And I hope today that a lot of the pictures that I have and the different things that I have here for you is going to really encourage you to know what we're learning today. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, if you're new with us, is the instructions on Christian living for the family. And that's why we enjoy having our families with us here. And we want to learn what it has to say to us and then apply it to the church. Verse 21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Do you see how Paul just made the comparison? He said, wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits to who? To Christ. What we learn is that all of the family, all of our families are a reflection of Christ in the church. Let's keep going. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. You see how the comparison comes up again. And gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way. So in the same way, Christ takes care of the church and does all of these things, making her radiant without wrinkle, without blemish, holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his what? Members of his body. Thank you. Do you notice that we've already had about three or four comparisons between Christ and the church and the family? Did you notice that? Look at verse 31 now. Let's read it together. One, two, three. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Keep going. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. See, why is he interrupting the section on family and keeps talking about Christ and the church? It's because Christ and the church is why there is a family. You're going to learn that in just a moment. However, each one of you must uh, love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. All of these messages are online when we talked about husbands and wives and mothers and fathers. And then verse six, chapter 6, verse 1 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise, so that it may go well with you, that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And yet last week we talked about fathers being good dads. And a way that fathers are bad dads is they exasperate their children. They put unrealistic expectations on them. And since they didn't do it right God's way, 
that try to force their way upon their children. And I don't know if you remember, I played that video from 50 Cent who was trying to protect his daughter from dating a bad guy, and he told the guy, I'll break your legs or I'll make you live in a wheelchair. That's no way to raise your children to threaten their boyfriends. I have no fear of a boyfriend in my girl's life because I've raised them the right way. See, exasperating your children is because you don't trust them because they haven't been raised right. If you raise them right, you don't have to exasperate them. So sometimes people think good parenting is being exasperating. That's not true. Good parenting is teaching them to be mature Christians. Now look at the order of the family, what we just read. Does everybody see it in that section? God's in the family, the church, then the husband, then the wife, then the children. If you take any of these things out of order, then you're going to be in trouble. And all of those lessons, like I said, are online. But I want you now to look at this chart. We talked about it before in the book of Ephesians. It talks about the Trinity and how mankind was made in the Trinity. Did you know that you were made to reflect God? Ask yourself this question if you haven't already. Why did God make us? Why are you here? Why are families here, children here? Well, when we look to the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we see God said, let us, plural, make mankind, plural, in our image, plural. There are three plurals right there. Let us, in our image, in our likeness. What is the point there? Is that God is three persons in one divine being. Everybody say the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, or the Holy Spirit. You see, God is not three parts of a pie. The Father's not one-third God, and then Jesus is one-third God, and the Spirit's one-third, and together they make a whole. No. And then God is not just one person, like I'm one person, and sometimes I'm a father, other times I'm a son, and then other times I'm a pastor. No, God is three separate, distinct persons. The Father's not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, yet they equally share the nature of God. Everybody say, humanity was created... To reflect the Trinity. This is why you were made. Everybody get this. There is no secret to why there's a human race upon the planet right now. We were made in His image. Now, how did the Son... Jesus come down and make us. The Bible says the Son made us in the image of God. He, Jesus, created us male and female. Well, now we have fathers and mothers, created them and blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. So you see that there are three distinct separate persons in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And now there are three distinct persons in the whole entire human race. It doesn't matter what culture you've come from, what generation you've lived upon this planet, no matter what, there are these three persons in a family. There is a father, there is a mother, and there is a child. That is it. Now, can you have multiple children? Yes, but they represent child. They represent the third person. Now, as you can see, it looks identical. But some people, and I always got to correct them, try to wrongly say that the spirit becomes like the mother and then the son becomes like the child because Jesus has the title child. That's not correct at all. The father and son share authority like father and mother share authority. So don't try to make the persons of the Trinity fit into the exact roles of the family. They're unique and different to the Trinity, but what makes them similar is three in one.
In the family, three and one. Does everybody get that? That's important to understand because when we go to today's message and understand the purpose of this verse, we have to see Paul's intention. Why does Paul say, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one? He tells you why. Verse 32, because the husband and wife becoming one and having children, that three and one is a profound mystery, but it's about Christ and the church. So I want you to see this chart that I made that's going to take the next two hours to explain. Everybody look at it. Take a deep breath. You don't have anywhere to go. Let's learn what that means. When you go to the beginning of the Bible, Paul there is quoting the beginning, isn't he? He's quoting Genesis chapter 1, verse 20. Look at what he says. Excuse me, not Genesis chapter 1, verse 20, but verse 26 rather. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock, over the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So you were created to be like how God is in heaven. You were created to be like him on earth. Like there are three persons ruling in heaven, there was meant to be three persons multiplying upon this earth. Like he rules over the angels, you were meant to rule over the animals. Verse 27, so God created mankind, humanity, in his image, in the image of God. He created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves upon the ground. Now, why is that important when we're looking to the male-female relationship? Because can you have children and subdue the earth upon the earth with generation after generation unless you have two becoming one? No, you need male and female relationships. How else are you going to populate the planet? Are you going to do it with male and male relationships? Female and female relationships? Adults with prepubescent children? No, you're going to do it with a man and a woman. Did God create man to be with multiple women? Polygamy. No, God created one man for one woman, and there in that union of love, you're supposed to have a family. Now, guess what? Before the law of Moses, which we'll get to in just a moment, a thousand years before the law of Moses, there was what was called the moral law. The law of Moses then came along, explained the moral law better and more fully, but then also gave the Jewish people a religious law, how they were going to practice their religion in the temple, have priests and sacrifices and ceremonies, and then also gave them a civil law, how they would have kings and rulership, how they would have leaders of the land and make laws. Now, let me ask you a question. Before the law of Moses ever came, what do you think Noah's generation? got judged for? Not obeying God's civil law? Not obeying God's religious law? Or do you think the world got flooded because they didn't obey God's moral law? Which law didn't they obey? The, the civil law hadn't even been given yet. Moses hadn't even been born yet. Met God on the mountain. Are you listening? The religious law of priests hadn't even been given. Now keep tracking. When God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, Noah was for violence, and their generation was very violent. In the time of, of Sodom and Gomorrah, it was sexual perversion. At that time, were they breaking the civil law of the Jewish people? Were they breaking the religious law of the people? Or why did Sodom and Gomorrah get judged? Because they were breaking what law? The moral law. So before Moses ever came around, there was a moral law. Thou shall not lie. Thou shall not kill. 
You see, even Noah could eat whatever he wanted. It wasn't until they, they came through, the law came through Moses that they had a dietary law for their religious purposes. But during the time of Sodom and Gomorrah, they knew not to lay with each other. That's why they got judged. It wasn't because they didn't have Jewish preach a religious law. It was because they broke the moral law. Why am I telling you this? Because when we talk about sexual ethics in the Bible, people want to point to the Old Testament and say, well, if you believe that, do you believe all this other stuff? If you think that we shouldn't have same sex because of what Leviticus says, do you believe that you shouldn't be able to plant two vegetables in the same garden? Or do you believe that you should stone in a rebellious child? So what do we tell them when they throw back at us the, the religious law and the civil law? We say that God has always had a moral law. And the Old Testament always affirms the moral law. Now let me give you a little bit of a head start here. When Jesus came, did Jesus talk about a civil law, about stoning the adulterous woman, because that was in their civil law? Did Jesus talk about establishing a new priesthood and a new temple? Or did he fulfill those things, become the high priest, make the believer the temple, and then teach us a higher moral law? You see, what Jesus did is what the Bible says completed, fulfilled the entire Jewish civil law. By him being counted guilty, even though he was innocent, they crucified him because they said he was blaspheming. In civil law, they could kill him, but he wasn't blaspheming because he was God. So when they wrongly did it, he fulfilled all the wrongs they had done in the civil law. There on the cross, not only that, but he was a high priest offering up himself as a sacrifice, and he fulfilled all of the religious laws. But what did he not come to change, but only bring further the moral law. Because the Ten Commandments said, do not murder. He said, hey, you've heard it said, do not murder. Now I'm telling you, don't even hate in your heart. He took the moral law even deeper. He said, it's not just what comes into you, it's what comes out of your heart that makes you sinful. And then he said the same thing about adultery. You've heard it, one of the Ten Commandments, moral law, do not commit adultery. But I've told you, now don't even lust in your heart. So the moral law is seen in the Old Testament. As well as the civil and religious, we know Jesus fulfilled the religious and the civil, but what he teaches us is the moral, and the moral continues on. Now look at these scriptures right here. What does God tell Moses that you shouldn't do in sexuality? You shouldn't fornicate, have sex outside of marriage. Shouldn't have sex with a relative. Shouldn't have same sex with the men and men, women with women. Shouldn't have sex with animals. Shouldn't have sex with children, prepubescent children. Shouldn't have sex with another man or woman's wife. And you shouldn't rape each other. How many are happy those moral laws in the Old Testament? Now, which one of these moral laws do you think Jesus changed? He didn't change any of them. So if somebody now says to us, well, Jesus didn't say anything about homosexuality. Does he have to? No, because he upheld the moral law. Jesus not only said, I uphold the moral law of adultery, I now point to you and say, if you think it in your heart, you're now guilty of it. So do you think the moral law becomes less in the age of Jesus, or do you think it becomes higher? It becomes higher because now it's not just your actions, it's also your heart. So when Jesus comes, does he have to mention he has a problem with bestiality, pedophilia? No, so now if somebody says to us, get this, everybody, if somebody says to you, we don't have to listen to the Old Testament, you're going to say to them, does that mean bestiality is all good now? Because that's found in the same moral law of homosexuality. If you think we can do away with the homosexual law, we should be able to do with the bestiality law. What prevents us from having sex with animals if it's not God's law? Because people say it feels good, doesn't hurt anybody. Now, they may say, we don't like you comparing homosexual sex to sex with animals. We're not saying it's the same act, but we're saying it's the same perversion. 
Because God made an original version of sex, and it was two becoming one, male and female. Anything other than that is a perversion. Somebody say, help us, God. Now, do you think it's any dink that every time Paul talks in the New Testament about sin, the, and he makes a list, that the first thing in his list is always sexual immorality and impurity? Look at what he says in Galatians 5.19. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, what? Impurity. How many remember the previous parts of the book of Ephesians that we've already gone through? The parts that talk about the things we shouldn't do, the ways that we should obey Christ? Look at what he says when he makes this list here. He says, but among you, there must not even be a hint of what? So there must not even be a a hint of sexual immorality. Does that sound like a Bible that says everything goes now? No, he's pointing back to the Old Testament moral law, and he's saying all of these things still apply. Is it sexually immoral to have sex outside of marriage, yes or no? Is it sexually immoral to have sex with your relative? Is it sexually immoral to have sex with the same gender? Is it sexually immoral to have sex with animals? Is it sexually immoral to have sex with prepubescent children? Is it, sex to have, uh, is it a sin to have sex with someone else's husband or wife? Is it a sin to force yourself to have sex upon somebody? Any questions? Now let me tie this in to why this is so important. When Jesus walks the earth, what does he say in Mark chapter 10 verse 6? Look at what Jesus says in Mark chapter 10 verse 6. He says, but at the beginning of creation, God made them what? So if somebody says to me, do you believe Adam and Eve really existed? That sounds like a myth. I believe what Jesus believes, and he said they existed. So he said, at the beginning, they were there, and God made them male and female. The moment Jesus, red letter says, in the beginning, God made them male and female, is that not his way of backing up everything about sexuality and the moral law? That's it. He takes you right back to the beginning and says, that's what it's about. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. They will no longer be two, but what? One flesh. What happens on the honeymoon night? They become one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Is there any confusion to what Jesus believed? If there is, go quickly with me to Matthew. Just look on the board. I got it here ready. Matthew 15, 19. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, and what? Sexual immorality. You want to know what that word is in the Greek right here? Right here? Pornia. That's where we get the word pornography from. Perversion. Pornania, anything outside of God's ordained marriage from one man and one woman is immoral. Pornania, perverted, adultery, all of those things are in that same list. So now when Paul comes around, everybody get this. You got creation, you got Moses, you've got Jesus, now you've got Paul. What is he teaching in the, in the passage we're learning right now? Is he teaching that one man and 20 women make a marriage? Is he teaching that one man and one man make a marriage? Is he teaching that Ellen DeGeneres and Portia make a marriage? No, he says, for this a reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and how many become one flesh? Two, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about what? Christ in the church. Now, hey, I got a little surprise for you. It all comes right back to the beginning. He's telling us, look at, look at everybody. Paul is telling us the whole entire reason you were created, a male or a female, was to reflect God's union with you. You were made for union with God. 
Look at the end of the book, Revelation 19. Look at the end of the book and somebody go, ooh. Look at the end of the book, Revelation chapter 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice. This is the end of days. Be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Who's the bride of Christ? Point to where the bride of Christ is. We are the church is the bride of Christ. Fine linen and bright and clean was given to her to wear. The fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. What was Jesus' first miracle that he ever performed in the book of John? But it's John shows the timeline, which was in his whole ministry. What was the first miracle he did? Change the water to wine. Where? At a wedding. What's the last miracle he does upon the earth? Marries the bride of Christ at a wedding. It's always been about a wedding. I want you now to understand this. You were not made a sexual being so that you could just enjoy sex. You were made a sexual being so that every time you get together with your husband or wife, you could have a picture of what Christ is to the church. You were not made to have children just to take away your loneliness. You were made to have children to represent to you every time you have a child or look at a child to represent the love God has for his children. The entire human race, get this everybody, the entire human race is based on this principle. Humanity is made in the Trinity's image to becoming one Christ and his church. There it is. Father, Son, Holy Spirit with man, woman, and child marrying together. What do I think is a picture that represents it? Think of God being the red flame, you being the blue. This is how close you are to be with God in your spirit. This is the whole entire purpose of family. This is the whole entire purpose of civilization. The Christian should not be calling out to God, where are you? Where are you? I need you. The Christian should be declaring, you are with me, God. You never leave me nor forsake me. You are closer than the air I breathe. You are the lover of my soul. I hear you and feel you within me. Oftentimes people ask, well, where does God live? And we say the heart, and that's okay. But what is the heart? Is the heart that organ that pumps blood? No, the Bible says that the heart is your soul. So I tell my children, you want to know where Jesus lives? He lives where your thoughts live. He lives where your feelings live. He lives inside of you. He is deep within you. Are you and Jesus this close? Come on, are you and Jesus this close? Are you guys intertwined together? Can you hear him speaking to you? If not, today be born again and be made a Christian. Because coming to church does not make you a Christian. Coming to church does not make you this close to God. I can go to the baseball field, but that doesn't make me a Cubs player. I can go to McDonald's. That doesn't make me a hamburger. I can go to the bank. That doesn't make me a millionaire. Coming to church does not make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is being born again in your spirit and, two, becoming one, God with you, God with the human race, God on the inside. Literally, his name, Emmanuel, means God with us. And how does God see us? God see us as the beautiful bride of Christ. Now, I know it says she's clothed in white, but this is the best that I can do. This is how special you are to God. God is not thinking you're special because of what you're going to do for him. The Bible says he's already seen you as a sinner at your worst, and he still loved you then. He loves you for what he made you for. You literally, I don't know how else to say this other than over-repeating it, so I hope you get it. You literally were made. By two coming together being one, so that you would understand two coming together being one, God with you in your spirit. 
There is nothing greater than that. The whole reason why we have family, the whole reason why we have intimacy, the whole reason we were made male and female is so that this understanding could be crystal clear to us. You are a part of a divine romance. God is a great lover, and he is searching for those who want him, who want to spend eternity with him. This is what sin does, is it separates us from God. Sin is not just something bad that he doesn't like. Sin is the very evil in darkness that pushes away the light of God and the relationship he made us for. It wasn't that the fruit itself was the issue. When they ate it in the Garden of Eden, it was the disobedience. And when you read the Bible through the prophets, especially the prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, they use this metaphor over and over again of the people of Israel. God saying, I'm your husband, and I love you, but you keep cheating on me and cheating on me, and you leave me, and you want to divorce me, but I'm faithful to you. The Bible even says in the New Testament that this is the exact example that God gives to us right now, that when we don't obey him, we are adulterers to him. Look at what it says in James chapter 4, verse 4. Somebody say, help us, Jesus. You nice people who always come to church on Sunday. Is that what it says? Look at verse 4. You beautiful people. Is that what it says? No, you what? You adulterous people. Why does he use marriage language with the church? Why doesn't he just say, you filthy sinners, get out of my way, get out of my life, you know, I don't want you, go to hell. No, he uses marriage language because it was always about God marrying the human race. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity or anger and hatred against God? Therefore, anyone, somebody say anyone. Come on, thank you. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. How many know that's scary? So that means you turn your back on God. God says, I can't save you. Hell is not a place he's pushing you into. Hell is a place you're running towards. Do you all get that? Hell is a place that humanity is running to, and God is trying to stop us, reach out to us. And then now look what it says in verse 5. Or do you think that the scripture, without reason, says he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? Some of y'all don't get this, but I need to pause right here. Do you know that according to God, jealousy is a good thing for him to have over you? Why is it wrong for us to be jealous, but it's good for God to be jealous? It's the same reason why it's wrong for us to kill people in judgment and to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and then it's right for him. Because God's jealousy is a perfect expression of his love. We are supposed to let people go who don't want to be in our lives. But God is saying there is nowhere else you could ever go other than here. And I am jealous for your love when I watch you wasted on other people and things. He literally has a pure, think of this, a pure jealousy for you. You, you. you know, you could go through a divorce and marry another person better than the one you left. And so if you were jealous of their life, somebody would tell you, get over it and move on. If you don't have Jesus, he is jealous for you because you will never have what he gives you. And this is the language that the Bible gives us. Because the Bible paints a picture that we are supposed to be in union with Jesus. So what, are, what, is, what is the purpose of fathers, mothers, and children? Children, 
The purpose is for us to know God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's what it was always about. So stop right now and ask yourself this question. Do I have a relationship? Listen to the word, not a religion. But do I have a relationship with the family of God? How many have a relationship with the family of God? Be honest. Okay, if you do not have a relationship with the family of God, if you are not in this relationship, you need to be born again. But how many of you have been born again and you're in the relationship with the family of God? Okay. And how do we fit into the family? The Bible says we become like the Son. We become like him. We are transformed actually into his image. Go to Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Look at what the Bible says. How many have heard this before? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? How many have heard that before? But did you know right before it, look right before verse 31, that powerful passage, it has verse 28 that starts it off. It says, and we know, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, those who have been called according to his purpose, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so why do we have children as an example of being conformed to our image is so that we can see we were made to be conformed to his image, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Can I get you to look up at me? I just want to tell you this again. You were predestined to be made into the image of Christ. You were made to share in the family of God. You were made to be like Jesus in the family of God, not sharing his all-powerful divinity, but participating in the divine nature, being like him in his image. That's why Peter says, look at it, Second Peter says, we participate in the divine image. Some of you are going to have to listen to this recording because you ain't amening like I'm preaching. Y'all ain't even getting half the points I'm saying. I've already dropped about 30 scriptures on. you still trying to catch up to the first. Listen to what Second Peter chapter, chapter 1 says. It says this, and it helps us understand who we are. It says Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4, through these he's given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the what? The divine nature, escaping the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. So where are you supposed to be? You're supposed to be in the sun participating, dancing with the divine, being conformed to the image of Jesus. We were literally made in his image to be a part of the God family, not to be little gods, not to take on his power in that way, but to take on his image. Just like my children take on my image, you were made to take on his image. And then now, guess what? That's why you have a family. Because the wife is supposed to be like Jesus submitting to the Father. And then the children are supposed to be like the Holy Spirit listening to the Father and the Mother. And then upon this earth, we're supposed to have dominion as fathers and mothers and children. As the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have dominion in heaven. And so what was once lost in the Garden of Eden... Is now brought back to us at the restored heaven and earth. Let us be glad and rejoice, Revelation 19, 7 says, and give him glory. Why? For the wedding of the Lamb has come. That wedding has come. And his bride has made herself ready. 
Can I show you another passage that talks about what is coming to an end? You won't be a mother forever. You won't be a father forever. Listen, you won't always be a small child forever. No one's going up to heaven just to be reunited with their family. We're going to heaven to be reunited with God. That's why we're going to heaven. And we're coming back to earth to rule and reign with God because that's why he made us to begin with. You and I were made to be clothed in the glory of God, walking upon this earth with him. Look at what it says in Revelation 21 and onward. You want to talk about a beautiful honeymoon, this is what it's like. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth that passed away and there was no longer a sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven from God prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. We come down out of heaven. You don't stay up in heaven forever. You come down out of heaven with the city of Jerusalem, prepared to live forever with God. And I heard a, I heard a soft voice. Is that what it says? No, I heard like an Italian preacher voice. Come on. And I heard a loud Puerto Rican voice. Come on. Wait. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who's seated on the throne says, I am making some things new. No, I am making everything new. Woo! Hallelujah! Thank you, Jesus. I mean, I literally can see this, like how we see a wedding. Everybody's there at the reception. Those are going to be the angels, and then they're going to say, here comes the bride and the groom, and we're going to be ushered into the new earth to be with Christ. What a day that will be. No more crying, no more weeping, no more death, no more pain. The bride of Christ will be with her husband. You were made for relationship. God is searching for those who want to be with him. He's not going to force you to be married to him. That's why there's not forced marriages in the Bible. Our Bible is not like other religious books, like those of the Hindus, the Buddhists, and the Muslims who have forced marriage. Our book is a book where the choosing happens by the Father first for the appointment. This one is good enough for you. The Father approves of the man, and then the wife herself makes the choice. The father picked out the son for us and says, this is your husband. And we willingly, willingly say back to the father, yes, we will be married to your son. But you can refuse the son. You can refuse him if you want. You will not be forced into heaven. You can choose willingly to go to hell. But how many want to choose him? Now, do we choose him? Because it's our choice first? No, our choice is a response to him chasing us down. We choose him because he first chose us. We love him because he first loved us. That's how it works. And so he's not looking at you based on your human potential or how good of a Christian you can be. He's looking at you based on what he made you to be. And he says, I'm a good creator. I'm a good father, and I made you to be a great bride to my son. The only way we let down God is when we don't let God have our lives. 
That's what breaks the heart of God. The Bible says, many will ask in the end times, where's his coming? I thought he would be here by now. It's been thousands of years. Why hasn't he come? But the Bible says he's waiting for more people to accept him because he loves the world and wishes that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. So he's literally waiting for you and you and for me to accept him so that we may be with him. So that when that day comes, no one will have an excuse if they didn't choose him. He'll remind them. He'll remind you. Don't you remember you were in that church service? That Italian preacher kept preaching loud at you until his face turned red. But you didn't want me then. Remember those people with Chicago for Jesus shirts? They ran into you when you were backing it up at that Boricua Fest and they told you about Jesus. Do you remember that one crazy tongue-talking co-worker I put next to you every day you came to that job? She annoyed you, but she was annoying you, telling you about Jesus. No one will stand before God and say, well, God, if I would have had another choice, uh, a chance I would choose you, or I didn't know I was doing really the wrong thing. No, the Bible says in our hearts, we know what we choose. Now, we may not like the consequence, and people may reject that, uh, uh, re, that um, What's that word? Re, uh, regret. Thank you. They may regret their decision, but they will not say, I didn't know my decision. May God be one with you today as he's one with this church. Amen. Would you just close your eyes and pray as the altar workers come and the band comes with me, please? Would you search your heart right now? If you need that visual image, feel free to look back up at the screen. But in an attitude of prayer... Are you this close to Jesus? Is he closer than the air that you breathe right now? If he, if he is not, would you repent of anything that keeps you from him? What is sin? It's separating you from God. It's a decision or a mindset that separates you from God. What is repentance? Repentance is returning to the thing you are pentiful about, you're penitent about. Return to God for the things you are sorry about. Whatever wrong decisions you've made, repent and turn back to God. Those of you who would say, Pastor, I am close to Jesus, well then just be thankful right now. Tell him how much you love him. But even for Christians, if you say, Pastor, I'm close, but I've been closer. I love him, but I've loved him more. Oh, would you pray right now that God would soften your heart that you would be closer now than you've ever been, that you would love him now more than you've ever loved him. Even as I'm praying right now, if some of you want to come to your feet and come up here to the front, you can. We're not going to embarrass you or judge you because I know some of you just want to move. You can move right now. But I want to keep praying just a few more moments over everyone. We'll dismiss in just a moment, but if you're ready, just come now. Don't let me stop you. Right now, if you're sitting here and you're saying, I know this is what I need, but I don't know where to start, you need to start with the discipleship of this church and get plugged into relationship and learn the word. For, the, for others of you, you may be saying, yeah, I get all this, but my marriage is not good right now. My family's not good. You may be a single mom. You may be a single dad. Or your marriage may be facing issues. Would you pray right now that your family will reflect God's family? Even come up as I'm talking with your whole family. Nothing to be embarrassed about. No one's here to judge you. You don't even have to say all that you're going through. But we'll pray for you. But right now, look at your family. Does it reflect Jesus? 
Some of you children, you want us to pray for your parents to get saved? Maybe you come here as a teenager to elevate, but your parents aren't saved yet. We'll pray for you. All of us right now, come on, let's thank God that we're a part of this family. If I haven't hit on something that you need to get prayer for right now, would you at least be thankful and start to worship with us? We'll dismiss in just a moment. But God has a family, the Father, Son, and Spirit, and He's made a family, mother, father, and child, so that we can be one with Him, so that humanity can be one with the Trinity. You are meant to be close to God. Those of you who have doubts and fears about your future, maybe you're a young adult, or maybe you're getting to retirement age. We'll pray for you today to not be afraid of the future. To not be afraid of what lies ahead. If he's brought you to this point, he's going to bring you to the end. The very evidence that there's a God is that there's a you. You are the greatest evidence of God that you'll ever meet. The very fact that you have your own thoughts. You have your own feelings. You have your own free will. That didn't come from the goo through the zoo to you. Evolution does not explain that, my friends. You being a soul is the evidence of God inviting you in to be one with your spirit now. A few more moments. A few more moments. I don't want you to leave out until you know that you can move from your seat and receive prayer. And you can be touched by that God today deeply, deeply and intimately. God is not a God of religion. He is a God of relationship. I, as a man, have no problem admitting I'm in love with Jesus. He is the lover of my soul. He has come after me. He has won me. He has pursued me. He laid down his life for me. And all I have to do is stop resisting him and yield my heart to him. Oh, it's been a wonderful journey over 20 years. Anyone else here on the romantic journey with God and it hasn't got old yet? Come on, thank him. Who else here is enjoying the divine romance? Who else here today is in love with Jesus? As they're praying, would the rest of you stand up to your feet? Would you right now just lift up your hands in 30 seconds of praise, just tell God how much you love him. Those who are praying, keep praying, but those the rest of us, come on. 30 seconds, be thankful. 30 seconds, clap your hands, jump, shout. Do whatever you got to do. Come on. Come on, 30 seconds of gratefulness. Gracias, Señor. Gracias, Señor, for loving us, for pursuing us. Come on, 20 more seconds. There's nobody like you, Jesus. No one has ever loved me like the way you've loved me. No one's ever touched me down in my soul like the way you've touched me, Jesus. Oh, you've changed me from the inside out. Thank you, Jesus. Come on, 15 more seconds. Be grateful. Be grateful in the presence of our King. He's the King and He's fallen in love with us. Five more seconds. Is He worthy? Is He worthy today? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I'm going to pray a prayer of dismissal, but if you still want to pray and worship, you can hang out with us in what we call the after party. Lord, thank you for bringing us here safely. May we go our separate ways with your grace and your peace. And even though we'll learn other things moving forward on this journey of the book of Ephesians, may we never forget 
that the most important thing is about you loving us and being unified with us. May we see it in our marriages. May we see it in our families and in all that we do in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Can you give it up for Jesus? God bless you. You.